Father, once again we come to you and we ask that you would be with us. You promised where two or three are gathered in your name, you would also be in the midst of us. And Lord, there are more than us here this evening. So Father, please send the Holy Spirit to inspire, to teach us, to lead us, to guide us into all truth. And bless us now as we open the book of Revelation to read once more. In Jesus' name we pray and ask. Amen. Revelation chapter 1. We're going to start going into the nitty-gritties of the book, as you can say that. But um, let's look at this first chapter. Now, once again, I'm going to re-emphasize, and I'm going to probably do this a few times, so that you understand that we're not going into too much detail into Revelation. With time constraints, um, that is the, really the limiting factor in not allowing us to spend too much time on each chapter. But there are 36 hours and there's 22 chapters, so obviously some chapters be more important than others. We will spend more time in them. But certainly every chapter is important. And chapter 1 certainly is one of them. But we'll only be spending one hour on this chapter, okay? So let's go into it. Um, some observations that, we've had in, that I've had in Revelation as I've gone through that chapter, chapter 1, are two things, okay? The first observation that we had is that there are words that describe time. That's the first thing. And we're, I'm going to show you that in a minute. But the second observation is that it's an index or summary to the rest of the book. But it's especially an introduction to the seven churches. Chapter 1 introduces the seven churches. Chapter 4 and 5 introduces the seven seals. So chapter 1 is very important to understanding the seven churches. Okay? Now, here's a chapter outline. You may differ with me on, on this, but I just wanted to outline the book to give you an understanding of what really it's talking about mainly. First three verses, verses 1 through 3, introduce the Revelation. What the book of Revelation is about. Okay? Verses 4 through 7 is John's introduction of Jesus to the seven churches. So John spends a bit of time describing Jesus in his own words. Jesus didn't tell him this is what he is, but this is what John felt inspired to write about Jesus. Verse 8 is Jesus' introduction of himself. Verse 9 is John's introduction of himself. And verses 10 through 20 is Jesus, how Jesus reveals himself to John, but especially to the churches, the seven churches. Okay? So, main overview. Verses 1 through 3, introducing Revelation. Verses 4 through 7, John's introduction of Jesus to the seven churches. Verses, verse 8, Jesus' introduction of himself. Verse 9, John introduces himself. And verses 10 through 20 is how Jesus reveals himself to John and to the churches. Okay, let's continue on. Now, I'm going to show you this outline that of the observation that I had, words that describe time. So let's open to Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, the first verse. Now, I'm going to read this out, and I want you to pick out how this verse describes time, okay? The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must what? Shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. Now, where in this verse does it talk about time? Shortly come to pass. Okay, so that's the first verse that we see that describes time. Next verse, verse 3. Let's read it together, okay? One, two, three. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. Do we see time there? Time is at hand. Okay. Next verse, verse 4. Let's read it together again. One, two, three. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you, and peace from him which is, and which was, and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Where do we see time there? Which is to come, that's it? Which is, which was, and which is to come. What's that? Past, present, future. Dealing with time as well, Okay. Next verse, verse 8. One, two, three. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. 
See that again? Past, present, future. Which is, which wasn't, which is to come. Okay. The next, next verse. Verse 11. Let's read this together. Just the first part there. It says, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. So we see time there again. Which one is it? First and the last. Actually, Alpha and Omega is not dealing with time. It's the Greek alphabet. Okay? But yes, first and the last is there dealing with time as well. Okay? <clears throat> Next verse. Verse 18. One, two, three. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Where's time there? Do you see it? Past, present, and future again. I am he that liveth, present, and was dead, past, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Present to future. Okay? So, actually, one more verse. I didn't write it down here, but verse 19. Let's read that together. One, two, three. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. What's that? Past, present, future. Okay, so what's a great application for this? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven verses out of how many verses? Twenty. More than a third of the verses deal with time. So really, what, what Jesus inspiring John to write is trying to tell us is that you don't have to worry. God is in control of time. He's in control of the past. He's in control of the present. And he's in control of the future. The only problem that we have to realize is this. You've got to know where you are. Where are we? Where are we? And we're at this point of our understanding to know that time is short. We need to understand that. Because if we don't understand that, the relevance of time being in the past, present, and future will not hit us as clearly as it should. So the great application really of this is to understand where we are in time and to know that time is short. Okay, let's continue on. <clears throat> now, the second observation that I had was that it's an index and a summary to the whole book. Now, that first handout that I gave you with the pieces of paper stapled at the back, um, that is really, if you look at chapter 1 and the words that are found in chapter 1, you'll find all the links to them. But I'm just going to go through a few, okay, this evening. And so I just picked out a few verses. The first verse, verse 1, talks about servants of God, okay? Now, can someone turn to Revelation chapter 7 and verse 3? Someone at the back. Someone at the front turn to chapter 10 and verse 7. And someone in the middle, uh, Chad, I think you're right in the middle, turn to chapter 22 and verse 6 and 9. Okay, someone at the front. Someone at the back, someone in the middle, chat. Okay, the one at the back, read verse seven, chapter 7, verse 3 for us. So did you hear servants of God? Now, chapter 10, verse 7. Servants, his servants, God's servants. And Chad, a loud voice, chapter 22, verses 6 and 9. And he said unto me, These sayings are faithful and true, and the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. And I, God, saw these things and heard them. When I heard them, that when I heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. Then saith he unto me, See thou do it not, for I am thy I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren, the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book, worship God. Mm -hmm. So John here also is saying, I'm a servant of God. Okay? And the person, the fellow that he's talking to says that he's a servant of God as well. So in chapter 7, chapter 10, and also chapter 22, it talks about servants of God. So I'm just warning you now, 
what you read in Revelation chapter 1 will be found throughout the rest of the book, but especially to the seven churches. Okay? Verse 2 talks about the testimony of Jesus Christ. We read that in Revelation 19, even Revelation chapter, I think, 22. No, just 19. But 12, 17, it talks about how the dragon was wroth with the woman and went, went to make war with the remnant of her seed that keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And Revelation chapter 19 also speaks of the testimony of Jesus Christ. Verse 3 talks about how time is at hand. And we looked at the last verse, second last verse of the whole Bible. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 10. Rather, that's not the second, that's not the last, second last verse. Pardon me. That's like 20. Yes. Um, 22 verse 10. It tells us once again that time is at hand. So what you're, you're reading consistently, keeping the commandments of God, the faith of Jesus, all these things, um, testimony of Jesus Christ, all these things are repeated throughout. Let's look at one more. Uh, Revelation 13 talks about golden girdles. Chapter 15 verse 6 talks about the same thing. <clears throat> now I'm going a bit faster on this so we can spend a bit more time on other things. But um, one more. A few more, actually. Verse 14 talks about eyes as a flame of fire. Now, Revelation chapter 2, verse 18, talks about eyes as a flame of fire. And chapter 19, verse 12, same thing. Okay, so we see these similar concepts. Now, I'm probably not giving you enough time to write these down, but that's okay. You have that handout. You can look at that later. Okay? I'm not sure if it will repeat over itself in these sort of things that I've brought out. But test the Bible. Test Revelation chapter 1. In every verse, you can find the same concept repeated somewhere in Revelation. Okay? It'll repeat. It'll, it'll say it again. So you can find that. Every verse. Okay. But what I really want to do is get on into the book. But here we see a big, big overview of Revelation. Time. We saw that, right? Eight verses out of the 20 deal with time. And the other thing, Jesus Christ. The last 10 verses spend in great detail describing about Jesus Christ. So let's look at that. This theme, this is the theme of the book as well. So clearly, chapter 1, now I know that I've rushed through it, but generally we do spend a lot of time in it. Um, but really, go back and study in depth this chapter about its theme and how it lines up with the two things. Time is short and the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay. Now let's go to verse 1. <clears throat> revelation chapter 1 and verse 1 the revelation of jesus christ which god gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass and he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant john the first thing that i want to look at here is the reason why jesus or god signified it what does that word signified mean simply means to give a sign or mark or to indicate. So this signified, it almost means as if Jesus is encrypting the book of Revelation. He's encoding it. He's putting it into Morse code or something so that some people won't understand. Very interesting, hey? But according to the verse 1, who are those that will understand the book of Revelation? Servants of God. You see, God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which will shortly come to pass. But why did God have to signify it? I mean, why did he have to do that? Let's look at a few verses, okay? John chapter 12. What is the purpose of this signifying? And what does it mean to signify, and especially when Jesus Christ does it? John chapter 12. One of my favorite authors actually quotes this book of Revelation. She says a few things about it. She says, all the books of the Bible begin and end in Revelation. Out of the 404 verses, I believe, more than half of them are quoted from the Old Testament. All the books of the Bible begin and end in Revelation. And she says, and when Revelation is rightly studied, there will be a revival of primitive godliness such as there ever was. And the revival of the spirit of our pioneers and also those martyrs in the days of the Dark Ages will be revived again. 
And I want that. I want to be like that, don't you? Uh, our world is too dead at the moment. We need a revival in Revelation. What do you say? And that's why we're here. And I hope that you guys can make it out every week. But let's go to John chapter 12 and starting in verse 32. Jesus is speaking here of his death. He says, And I, if I be lifted up from all the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. So Jesus is speaking here, but he doesn't say, look, people, I'm going to be lifted up on a cross, and I'm going to die. What did he say? He says, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw men unto me. And so this was kind of a picture that he's given, big picture to his disciples, so that when they saw it, they would understand. This is the same concept that's repeated in Revelation. There are things in there that are totally, not totally clear yet. But this signifying of this book, when things come to pass, you will then understand. The disciples didn't understand what Jesus was talking about. They walked with him for three and a half years. And he gave as many signifying stories and parables and whatever it may be to tell them this is how he's going to die. But they still didn't understand. They thought he was going to come and be king and be a ruler, right? But finally, when he was lifted up on the cross, they finally understood Were they sincere? Sure. But they didn't understand until the point of time when it came to pass. Then everything made sense. Let's look at another one. John chapter 21. The last chapter of John. Now mind you, this is the same author that wrote the book of Revelation too. Thought it was just an interesting point. John chapter 21, verse 18 and 19. Okay, the Bible says here in John chapter 21, starting verse 18, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, when thou wast young, thou girdest thyself, and walkest whither thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee, and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. This was Jesus speaking to Peter. And this was when he had been resurrected, and they were at the seaside. And he speaks to Peter and says, Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter says, yes, I do, I do, I do, Lord. And then he goes on and tells him this parable, so to speak. But what was it all about? Verse 19. This he spake, signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said unto them, follow me. How did Peter die? Do you know? Upside down, what? On a cross. So, I mean... Uh, Jesus didn't go and say, Peter, you're going to die upside down on a cross. He didn't say that, did he? Was he incorrect by saying what he said in verse 18? Certainly not, but signifying. Peter, I'm not going to tell you how you're going to die, but when the time comes, you're going to understand what I meant by that. See that? The importance of signifying. And this leads to our next step. Why did Jesus have to speak in parables? Here's a whole profound question. I mean, why did Jesus, why can't he just be straight? I mean, if he was so plain, we would all be saved then. We would go to heaven, wouldn't we? Yeah, the second coming would have come long ago. Why, didn't, why did he have to do that? I mean, Jesus, why do you just have to be so confusing? Don't you ever ask yourself that question? Is it unfair for him to do this? Or do we have to all be like him to some extent to understand what he's talking about? There's two reasons, clearly, why Jesus spoke in parables. The first, to hide the truth from the enemies. Just as if you're on enemy lines and you're tapping out Morse code or using a flashlight and everybody from the, on the opposite side can see exactly what you're doing, they have no idea what it means. You see that? And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He has people out there that are his people, servants of God. But everybody can see it and they're not all servants of God, but only a few understand. And this is probably the reason why there are so many interesting interpretations of Revelation out there today. Because really, not many understand. But they're just making up their own. But really, the truth is hidden from those that don't understand, his enemies. But the second thing, to test the true seekers of the truth. You see, here is 
under the sound of my voice, there are maybe up to 20 of you, 15 or, or so. But not everybody may understand the book of Revelation here. I may have left you in the dust maybe a few minutes ago or half an hour ago, whatever it may be. But really, the reason why Jesus spoke in parables or why he signified the truth that he had was truly test the sincere Christians out there. Because really, in our church today, we have a multitude of people that are here for different reasons, for food, for money, for friends, for different things. But really, he wants to only have those that are there for the truth's sake. He loves everybody. But those that will understand the revelation are only those that truly and sincerely seek out the truth. Okay? And this is the reason why he spoke in parables. First, to hide the truth from the enemies. And secondly, to test the true seekers of the truth. Let's go on. Servants of God. Mentioned in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1. Now, this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our study this evening. Servants of God. Why are we doing that? Because it says in Revelation chapter 1 that the book of Revelation was written only to the servants of God. It wasn't written to anybody else. It wasn't written for anybody else. And the only people that would understand the book of Revelation were those that were servants of God. So let's study these characteristics, okay? There are four verses primarily that we're going to look at. The first one is found in Romans chapter 6 and verse 22. Now, we're not going to turn to them yet. We're going to turn to them in a minute. But I want you to just write these four verses down in four different sections, and we're going to address them, okay? Romans chapter 6, verse 22. The second one, Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 6. The third one, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 24. And the fourth one, Galatians chapter 1 and verse 10. There are many, many other verses that look at the servants of God. But the reason why I picked these four out is because I want to study it in light of the theme of Revelation, which is what? What's the theme of Revelation again? Jesus Christ and what else? Time is short, okay? Let's look at the first one. Romans chapter 6 and verse 22. Free from sin. Romans chapter 6, verse 22. <clears throat> Romans chapter 6 and verse 22. The Bible says, But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. So if you're a servant of God, you'll be what? Free from sin. But if you're not sinning anymore, what does that indicate? Let's go to 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4. What is the definition of sin? 1 John 3, 4. You see, if you're a servant of God, you stop sinning. That means you're not doing something according to 1 John 3, 4. Let's go there. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4. The Bible says, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. For sin is the what? Transgression of the law. So therefore, if you're a servant of God, okay, you're not sinning anymore. Okay? Not sinning. What does that imply? Not transgressing the law. Okay, because sin is the transgression of the law, all right? But now let's look at the next verse. Therefore, servants of God will keep the commandments. We see this in Revelation 12, 17, and also Revelation 14, 12. But if we go to Revelation 12, 17, if you'd like to turn there quickly with me, what is this verse talking about? What group of people? Does anybody know? What group of people is this that is keeping the commandments of God? The remnant. the remnant. How about in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 12? What group of people is that talking about? The 144,000. So really, John is a servant of God. 
so is the remnant, and so is 144,000. And all three of them do not sin. They're having victory over sin. They're experiencing the true revelation, which is Jesus Christ who came to save us from our sins. You seeing that? So therefore, a servant of God is part of the remnant, or the 144,000. But now let's look at this second part. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 6. Let's go there. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 6. The Bible says, Not with eye service as men pleases, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. So, the servants of God will do the will of God. But what is the will of God? Let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 3. Now, this is where we connect on to the servants of God, understanding from point number one, not sinning. But I want you to tell me, as I read this verse in 1 Thessalonians, what does it mean? What is the will of God? 1 Thessalonians, excuse me, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 3. For this is the will of God. Can't get clearer than this, okay? Even your, what? Sanctification. So what is the will of God? Your sanctification. But, here's another definition. Psalms 40 verse 8. What is the will of God here? In this instance. Okay? Let's go there. Psalms 40 verse 8. Psalms 40 verse 8 The Bible says I delight to do thy will O my God Yea thy law is within my heart So what is the will of God there? The law of God Can you see that? How do I know this? Because when David wrote the book of Psalms You see Psalms and Proverbs And I I think Job as well They use Hebrew poetry And what that, that means is what They say in the first sentence it's the exact same thing in the second sentence, but he says it a different way. So when he says here, Yea, I do like to do thy will, O my God, the second part of this verse is reflecting what he said in the first part. Yea, thy law is within my heart. So the will of God there is equal to the law of God. Okay? So, this is the law of God. Which is equal to what? Which is equal to what? The law of God. Oh, did I say law? Sorry. The will of God. According to Psalms 40 verse 8, the law of God is equal to the will of God, right? And then the will of God is also equal to sanctification. Okay? So, the servant of God does not sin. He does not transgress the law. Why? Because he does the will of God. The law is written within his heart. And because of that, he has a sanctification experience. Now, the word sanctification simply means to be set apart for a holy use, different use. So, when you're sanctified, you're set apart. You're different. You're not like the rest of the people around you. But how are we sanctified? John 17, 17. Let's go there. John 17, 17. How can we have this sanctification experience? I mean, it's good enough knowing about it. But look, the book of Revelation needs to be practical if you want to have victory over sin, okay? It's pretty useless talking about theories if you can't put this into reality. So how can we have this sanctification experience which leads us to do the will of God that keeps us from sinning so that we keep the law. The Bible says in John chapter 17, 17, it says, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy what? Thy word is truth. So we're sanctified by what? Truth. Or the word of God. Okay, thy word is truth. So we have the experience of sanctification through the Word of God. 
So therefore, the will of God and the law of God must be written within the law of God. Am I, are you following me? So practically, how do we experience it? Here's a question that I need to ask you. And don't, you, don't answer. But when's the last time you spent time in the law or the word of God? Did you receive your sanctification experience today? If, you're, if you didn't, then you're probably not having victory over sin. Because you're transgressing the law. Because you're not doing the will of God. You don't have sanctification experience because you haven't studied the word of God. So simply put, the book of Revelation, the revealing of Jesus Christ needs to come from the Bible, not from Ben's mouth. And that's why I'm, I encourage you all to bring your Bibles, and I think you know that already. But beyond that, to study it, to see clearly for yourself. So if you do have questions, please come see me afterwards. And we can talk about this. Okay? But next step, there's one more that I want to take it a step further in the sanctification experience. Okay, let's go to Ezekiel 20. Let's read this one all together, okay? Now remember... If you see it in the Word of God, I'm not saying it. The Bible is. Amen? Okay. Let's read this. Ezekiel chapter 20 and verse 12. In relation to our sanctification experience, victory over sin, what is important here? Ezekiel 20 verse 12. The Bible says, let's read together. One, two, three. Moreover, also I gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between me and them, that they might know that I am the Lord that sanctify them. So what is related to the sanctification experience? The Sabbath. Which is related to that. And you find the Sabbath message in the law of God. It's one big round. They're all related to each other. And so... Servants of God, they will not sin, they will not transgress the law, they will do the will of God, they will have a sanctification experience by the word of God in studying it and also in keeping the Sabbath. And you'll see all this in Revelation. You'll see the Sabbath message brought out. You'll see um, the will of God, sanctification, the law of God, the Bible and the Bible alone brought out in Revelation. But most of all, you'll see victory over sin which is what we all want to have so we can be in heaven. But let's continue on. 2 Timothy 2.24, let's read that. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 24. There are some, some characteristics that are brought out here, but I'm only really interested in one. Um, the others are equally important, but there's just one that I decided to focus on. 2 Timothy 2.24. Let's read that together, shall we? One, two, three. So the last characteristic that is brought out there is patience. Now, let's go over to Revelation chapter 14 and verse 12. Now we see that the servants of God will keep the commandments of God. And we saw that in Revelation 14, 12 as well. But patience too. Let's look at it. Revelation 14, 12, the Bible says, here is the patience of the saints. So we know that the 144,000, which is what this is talking about, have patience. They are the servants of God. But here's a question. How do you develop patience? I asked you to study into it, but I think I'll go into it just briefly. I want to just warn you. Has anybody ever prayed for patience? Have you? Have, has your prayer been answered? Did God give you patience? 
He didn't give it to me. I'm a very hot-tempered person. <laughs> My sister can tell you all about it. <laughs> but I prayed for patience. And he didn't give it to me. You know why? He gave me something else. I'll show you what he gave me. How can we develop patience? How can we be like the saints? The 144,000. Let's go to James. Now, in this text, it just really clearly shows me you've got to be careful what you pray for. Because sometimes we really don't know what we pray for. We ask God to give us patience and He gives us something else. But He's still answering our prayer. Okay? He's still answering our prayer. James chapter 1 and verse 2. Starting there. The Bible says, My brethren, count it all what? Joy when you fall into diverse temptations. How? James is telling us, be happy when you're tempted. But then he says in verse 3, Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh what? Patience. So if you pray for patience, what is God going to give you? Trials and temptations. Has God answered your prayer? He answered mine. When I pray for patience, He gave me more trials. My brother has this characteristic of being late, especially when I meet him. And if I'm late, he's extra late. I don't know why but I always end up waiting for him. And when I pray for patience, I just, I don't know, but the Lord somehow brings my brother in later. And I've got to wait for him for my lunch break, which is only an hour, half an hour, just standing there on the side of the street waiting for him. It happens. And sometimes I'm just tempted to be so frustrated and angry. It happened a lot to me. But the more I pray for patience, the worse the situation got. Until God says, Ben, I don't give you patience. You develop it. I give you trials to develop your patience. So, these saints in Revelation 14, you must assume they've gone through something. What is it? Trials and temptations. These are the saints that have come out of great tribulation and they have their robes washed in the blood of the Lamb. And this is what Revelation talks about. Saints that will go through great trials and great temptations. And folks... If you can't go through the trials and temptations that you're going through today, you're probably not ready for Jesus Christ to come yet because there's greater trials and greater temptations that we're going to face in the future. Now is the time of our testing. We can't, if we can't stand what we have now, we're not going to stand what's coming in the future. I pray by God's grace that we'll be able to go through that. But let's continue. We're running short on time here. Let's go to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 10. Another characteristic of the, word, the servant of God. The Bible says here, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. So a servant of God is not a pleaser of man, but he's a pleaser of God. What does it mean by this? Let's look at a few verses to help us understand what it means not to be a pleaser of man, but a pleaser of God, okay? Let's look at a few verses. John chapter 12. John chapter 12, starting in verse 42. Here's a little story. A little illustration that we see in John to help us understand what it means to be a pleaser of God and not of man. John chapter 12, starting in verse 42, the Bible says... Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. Verse 43. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. They loved men, praising them more than they loved God. And you've got to understand the situation here. During that time, people, when they looked at the synagogue, the church, it was considered to be salvational. If you were in the church, you were saved. If you put out of the church, you're going to hell. And that's how serious the situation got. But we know that's not the case. And I'm sure that many people then knew that was not the case as well. And so they refused to confess Jesus Christ lest they be put out of the synagogue. Another story, same thing, same concept, John chapter 9. <laughs> this story talks about a, a blind man that Jesus healed, okay? And 
The Pharisees couldn't believe it. It's like, you sure Jesus Christ that healed you? And he says, well, ask my parents. <laughs> They'll tell you. I've, I was grew up with them. They know exactly what I'm like. And so they go ask the parents. And we pick it up in verse 19. The Bible says this. And they asked them, the parents, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then doth he now see? Verse 20. His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But by what means he now seeth, we know not. Or who hath opened his eyes, we know not. He is of age. Ask him. He shall speak for himself. Trying to shift the responsibility to the son. Wouldn't you like to have parents like that? Verse 22. This is the reason why they said these words. Though. These words spake his parents because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if any man did confess that he was Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, said his parents, he is of age. Ask him. They feared, you. They feared the Jews more than they feared God. And so they wouldn't confess that Jesus Christ was the one that healed their son, their only son that had been born blind of all these years. They refused to say it because they were scared of being put out of the synagogue. But on the contrary, we have another example in Acts. But let's go to 1 Corinthians first. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Excuse me. We'll get to Acts next. I was jumping the gun a bit. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 23. The Bible simply says, Ye are bought with a price. Be not the servants of men. What price were we bought with? Blood. It wasn't money. It was blood. We were bought with blood. Blood that can never be repaid because it was shed by the eternal Son of God. Salvation. That's the theme of Revelation. But now let's jump over to Acts. I want to be like these two men in Acts. Talks about two men, Peter and John. And Peter, if you know his history, he was a little, how do you call it, jelly-legged. He wouldn't confess Christ. When Christ was at that, that tribunal, remember, Peter was standing around the fire. And one of the maidens came to him and said, hmm, you're that man that was with Jesus Christ. And what did Peter say? I know not what you're talking about. Who are you? Who's that? And then another person came, and three times he had the chance of saying, yes, I stand for Jesus Christ. But three times he denied him. But this is a different Peter, a converted Peter. Look at what he says, starting in verse, Acts chapter 4 and verse 18. And they called them and commanded them not to speak or at all teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which ye have seen and heard. This is a different Peter. He says, I don't care what you do, whether it be right in the sight of God or of man. I'm going to say what I've seen and what I've heard. You can put me out of the synagogue, you can hang me, you can crucify me, but I will speak of Jesus Christ. And that's the sort of holy boldness that they had. And that's what I want to be like, confessing the name of Jesus Christ, no matter where you are, whether you're a bunch, uh, amongst all pagans, no Christians at all. Don't be ashamed. You were bought with a price, with blood Jesus bought you. Well, let's continue on. Verse 2. Back to Revelation chapter 1. Here's our dilemma. We have to finish 19 verses in 20 minutes. Let's see if we can do this, okay? <laughs> verse 2, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 2. The Bible says, Who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. This word, bear record. Do you know what it actually means in the original Greek? It means to martyr or witness. What's a martyr? Someone who died for what they believed in? Are you ready to die for the truth? Are you? The things that you've seen in the Bible, maybe not even in the past, but like just this evening, the things that you've seen and heard, just as what Peter and John say, 
whether it be right in the sight of man or of God, I cannot but speak the things which I've heard and seen. Are you ready to die like what Peter died, upside down on a cross? Or is your faith goes, and goes so far as how much money you get? Or how comfortable your life is? John was ready to die, and he did die for the truth's sake. And that's something that I really wanted to bring out. That sometimes our truth goes as far as our comforts will take us. And when God stops blessing, we stop following. But John was exiled in Isle Patmos. Do you know that John, it was, it was said of some people that he was thrown into a pot of boiling oil? He came out alive. I'd, I would wish I would have died in that pot. But he came out all burnt. But he still died. He still survived. And then they sent him to Isle Patmos. Can you imagine fully burnt, third degree burns, and you're still alive? And now you're writing a whole book. In fact, writing two books. And then he died. God knows. He knows. If you're going through any trials, temptations that will burn you, so to speak, God knows. He means it all unto good. Because He hasn't finished with you yet. He's still got a work for you to do. And be assured of that. Let's continue. Verse 3. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. There's a progression here in verse 3. It said, Blessed is he that what? Readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep. It's not enough to just read. It's not enough to just hear. The blessing is contained in those that keep it as well. But keep what? What is the prophecy about again? Jesus, to save us from our sins. So, is keeping the book of Revelation, of Revelation salvational? Yes. I'm sorry, but it's too late. You can't leave anymore. For those that are listening, it's too late. You've heard it already. It becomes salvational to you. Because why? By, reject, re, by rejecting the book of Revelation... You're rejecting who? Jesus Christ. You're not rejecting me. You're re rejecting Jesus Christ. So even the study of this book becomes salvational to all of us. Verses 4 through 6. Now, this is where we start going a bit faster, okay? So just hang on, and we'll, I'll, hopefully I can take you with me. Verse 4, it says, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you. Stop right there. The first words that John introduces to the seven churches and to all the readers that are to read this book, he says, grace be unto you. That's the first words that he uses to speak. But we also find this in the last verse of the whole Bible. Revelation chapter 22. Keep your finger there where you are and come with me to Revelation chapter 22 and verse 21. The last book, the last chapter, the last verse of all the Bible. It says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. His greeting, grace be unto you. His ending, grace. What do we need grace for? Tell me. What is grace? What do we need grace for? What is grace? Hmm? You're all unmerited favor? Now that's a textbook, textbook answer. I heard that this afternoon too. In your own words, tell me what is grace? God's mercy. That's exactly what the next person said. I thought I said, uh, say it in your own words. Amen. God's mercy. But simply put, it's a gift. It's a gift. Something that we don't deserve. Right? Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. Now, you're going to think I'm a grandpa or something, but it's going to keep reiterating over and over again the theme of Revelation. And it's so clearly seen and so beautifully put that you can't go wrong. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. The Bible says, for by what? For by grace are you saved. What do you want to be saved from? Saved from sin. So for by grace are you saved from sin through faith and that not of yourself. It is a what? Gift of God. So grace is a gift of God. Now come with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. What more about this grace or this gift that God has given to us? 
Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, the Bible says, For the wages of sin is what? Death, opposite to life. But the gift of God is eternal life through who? Jesus Christ our Lord. So grace is a gift, a gift of life through who? What does Jesus Christ mean? What does it mean? Save us from our sin. So we are saved by grace. Saved from what? Sin. Through grace, which comes from Jesus Christ. Do you see that theme? Reiterated once again. Grace. Let's go back. Revelation chapter 1. I think this is where our slideshow ends good. Now here I want you to notice something, okay? We won't be using slides anymore. But let's go back to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 4. The Bible says here, Grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth. There are three entities or three people being mentioned here. Him which was and which is and which is to come. Seven spirits. And from Jesus Christ. God the Father, the Holy Spirit, and the Son. And the greatest application that we can see here is that the Godhead is working together for our salvation. To give us grace. Jesus Christ wasn't the only person that suffered on the cross. God the Father suffered too. The whole Godhead was separated. And from eternity past, it was never been separated up till the point of AD 34. The whole Godhead suffered together at the cross so that we, ungrateful human beings, could have a chance at eternal life. What a great sacrifice. It was paid by blood. The whole Godhead is working together for our salvation right now as we speak. But let's continue on. Verse 6, And hath made us kings and priests unto God and His Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. See the verse 6, it says, made us what? Kings and priests. Political and religious being put together. If you study the book of Revelation and also the book of Daniel, every time human beings put political and religious powers together, it results always in persecution. But somehow God in His infinite wisdom in heaven, is going to make us kings and priests, political and religious put together. And there's going to be harmony. But the Antichrist is the one here on earth that does that, putting political and religious together. Verse 7, Behold, He cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see Him, and they also which pierced Him. And all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of Him. Even so, Amen. What is that giving us a picture of? Second coming. We'll see the same picture repeated in Revelation. Verse 8, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Jesus is introducing himself here, and the first thing he says, I am Alpha and Omega. The beginning and the ending of the Greek alphabet. But who's writing this book? John. And Jesus is talking to John. But John is not a Greek. He's a Jew. Why? Why does he use the Greek alphabet to talk to a Jewish person? He's telling John, you know what? I'm not starting with the Jews anymore. They're no longer my people. I'm going to the Gentiles. I'm going to finish, begin and finish the work with the Gentiles. Why? Because God's people, the Jewish nation, which was spoken by in Daniel's day, are no longer my people. They're gone. It's end. And then we go on, verse 9. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. John was isolated to the isle of Patmos for two things alone, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And we've gone through all this already. Whether, whether we be like him or not, we have to answer that question in ourselves this evening. Whether we are ready to die for the truth. I think there was a one, I forgot who it was that mentioned it, but he says, you haven't begun living until you've found a cause to die for. We don't know what it means to live. 
until we know what, that we found something to die for. And if we are not ready to die for the truth's sake, we're not ready to live for it. But John was. And he goes on and says in verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis and unto Laodicea. Uh, unto Sardis and unto Philadelphia and unto Laodicea. So here John hears this voice. And you have to imagine in vision as John is sitting there, he doesn't see this voice. He hears it from behind him. Okay? And it sounds like a trumpet. And in verse, 11, he tur- verse 12, he turns around. He says, And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw what? What does he see? Seven golden candlesticks, okay? And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes as a flame of fire. His feet were like unto fine brasses that they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand how many stars? Seven stars. And out of his mouth proceeded a, a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was as a countenance shineth in his strength. This is what John saw. I've never seen a being like that, and I don't think I ever will. But John saw that. And he says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. John was so scared that he, he shivered, just like the Roman guards when Jesus Christ was resurrected. John fell at his feet as dead. So scared of this being with a tongue like a sharp two-edged sword. Humility. This descriptions of what, Jesus, of what John saw will be later expounded in the seven churches. This is Jesus' introduction to the seven churches. This is what the seven churches need to know about Jesus Christ, his looks, white hair, eyes like this, feet like that, his mouth like this, his face like that. This is what they need to know. And then Jesus says, he lays his right hand upon him and says what? Fear not, I am the first and the last. What is his right hand? I just want to deal with a few things before we close here. In Isaiah 41, what does the right hand signify? Isaiah 41 and verse 10. Just bear with me a few more moments as we close up here. We're near the end. Isaiah chapter 41 and verse 10. The Bible says, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with thy right hand of my righteousness. So when Jesus laid his right hand upon John, he says, John, I'm lifting you up. I'm going to uphold you with my what? Righteousness. Okay? And then he says, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. And then he says in verse 19, even though John fainted, Jesus reminds him, Write the things which thou hast seen, okay? Don't forget that, John. You need to record these things. And the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. So this book of Revelation is about the past, present, and future, but especially about Jesus Christ and how John saw him. And lastly, verse 20 of Revelation chapter 1. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are what? The angels of the seven churches. So Jesus Christ have seven angels in his right hand. What does right hand represent again? Righteousness. So Jesus is upholding these seven angels which is with his righteousness. But that word angel, it's not a literal angel. Do you know what the word angel actually means? Messenger. So Jesus is upholding seven messengers with his righteousness. And the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. So Jesus Christ is in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. He's in the midst of the seven churches. He knows exactly what is going, in this, going on in this church, in your church, whichever church you go to. He knows exactly what is going on. But especially the leaders, he's upholding each one with his right hand of righteousness. So remember, an angel represents messenger. And the candlesticks represent 
churches. So this is the foundational understanding that we need to have before we jump into the seven churches now. So I've rushed through Revelation chapter 1 pretty quickly. Um, other, other people that I've heard surely spend three hours on just chapter 1. So certainly there's a lot more there to study. Um, but I hope I haven't worn you out. Please come back again tomorrow. Another two grueling hours of Revelation study. But by God's grace, I pray that this messages that you've heard will be inspiring, but most of all, that you apply it to your lives and you allow God to change it. You realize that time is short. Let's bow our heads forward to prayer. Let's kneel. Father in heaven, Lord, once again, we're so thankful for the book of Revelation. Oh Lord, help us to understand this book more clearly in our lives. And Father, we ask that you uphold us this evening with your right hand of righteousness. Please be with us throughout the rest of this evening. Watch over us, Lord, and bring us safely back tomorrow. Is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.